Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath morning. Uh, we pray above all that the Holy Spirit will be here to guide our thinking, to help us understand how we ought to relate to you and to those that you have placed in our lives to save us. Lord, please teach us through your spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our problem with authority. When you hear that word authority, how does it make you feel? What's the connotation? What's the knee-jerk gut reaction? Does it give you a warm, fuzzy feeling? <laughs> mm, not really, right? I heard the word control. That comes to my mind, too. Uh, how about things like stern, discipline, uh, punishment, maybe, correction, arbitrary? I mean, I could go on and on, right? And the words that just keep flowing in my mind, they don't necessarily conjure up feelings of positivity when we think about the concept of authority. But right at the outset here, my whole thesis, my whole point in this message is that how we relate and how we respond to authority in our lives, I believe, will play a role. It will determine our eternal destiny. So put it another way, how we deal with this issue is going to affect our ultimate salvation. Now, why do I say that? Well, we're going to get into that uh, in our message today. But let's just take an example in our society today, nowadays. When we think about authority, here are a few common authority figures or institutions that we think about in our, uh, in our lives that influence us. You know, we think about law enforcement. When I was growing up, the policeman with a nice gentleman in uniform that I can ask for directions. Now, when we talk about police, there's like an asterisk. You understand what I'm saying? When we hear the news, it's like, well, is, that, is he the good, good cop or is he the bad cop? We have this sort of feeling like we have to sort of be careful around them. We have to be suspicious. Well, what about the government? We begin thinking, I mean, this is the perfect time, right? If the government can't even keep themselves open, why should I respect them? You know, there's the joke, how do you... <laughs> Now, now, let's, let's, let's be careful where we're going with this. But, you know, there's, we, we frequently like to make little snide remarks about our governing uh, officials and our politicians. It's like the joke, how do you know when a politician is lying? If their lips are moving and there are words coming out of their mouth, that's how you know they're lying. And, you know, we have jokes like that, but, you know, it, it betrays sort of this underlying sense of distrust of mistrust and lack of confidence in these authority structures that are in our lives. Rules, the way that we like to think about it now, maybe it's unspoken, rules are there to be what? To be broken. That's the idea. Like, you are um, you're being the brave, courageous, entrepreneurial, innovative, smart one when you find a way to circumvent the rules. If the rules, you figure out a way to make the rules not apply to you, you're the hero, right? That's the way we like to think in this world. Rules are there to be broken, and if not, they're at least there to be bent. What about parents? This one really gets under my skin a little bit because I'm a parent now. And if you watch any television show, any Disney movie, any cartoon uh, or sitcom, who are the parents? Aren't the parents always the ignorant, out of touch, behind the times, the ones that just don't get it? And especially the father. Have you ever noticed that? I'm a dad, so I resent that. <laughs> because the dads now are the ones who are always the bumbling fool. He's the clown. He's comic relief. And usually mom has to set him straight, which actually is maybe not too far from real life sometimes. But the, but the bigger issue is when the children are always portrayed as they're the ones with a deeper insight. They're the ones that really have it together. My mom and dad, they don't even know how to use Instagram. Why should I listen to them? 
authority. What about religion? You've heard the term people say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Well, what do they mean by that? Frequently, not always, but frequently, the idea means I believe in having faith in the spiritual life. I believe in the supernatural and those types of things, but I just don't trust religious structures, organized religion, because there's hypocrisy there, the people there, they say one thing and do another. I've been hurt by them. You understand all of these things come flowing out, and perhaps we've experienced it ourselves. What am I saying in all of this? There are authority figures in our lives, but in a society at large, all of these authorities are being undermined. And so we are now living in a day and age in which authority has become a bad word. And it is put in mutual exclusivity with ideas which are now held up as the highest virtues, things like independence, freedom, liberty, self-expression, have it my way, don't tell me what I can do, don't tell me who I can be, let me be myself, right? We put these things as if to accept one, we have to reject the other. I don't believe that's the case when we look in Scripture. We can have both. There is freedom in Jesus. But that doesn't mean Jesus is not our authority, right? And so when we think about the world in which we live, how then can I say that how we relate to authority will ultimately determine our eternal destiny? Well, it's because I believe this is the absolute core issue in the great controversy. How do I know this? Let's go back to the very beginning. We all know this passage found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and 14. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which thou weakest, uh, didst weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Usually we say Lucifer had an eye problem. Well, yeah, he does have an eye problem, but notice he has an authority problem. He has a problem with authority. He does, he's discontent with God's authority, so he wants to be his own authority. You see that? That's how, the, that's how Lucifer's little scuffle, not a little anymore, but that's how it began. But to make this clearer, let's take a look at the book uh, Story of Redemption, page 15, paragraph 1. There was contention among the angels. Lucifer and his sympathizers were striving to reform the government of God. They rebelled against the authority of the Son. So there it is. Plain language. What was the issue that Lucifer had? He had a problem with the authority of not just God the Father, but specifically who? The second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. There's an interesting passage that I did not insert in this uh, in these slides, but there's actually a phase in Lucifer's rebellion in which he said to God the Father, I'll listen to you. I just don't want to follow Jesus. That's a very interesting idea if you think about it. And that is related to this next point, and that is if you look at that statement again, notice how Lucifer and his angels framed their cause. They said, we are striving to do what to the government of God? to reform it. Lucifer had a problem with God's authority, but he didn't present it as a selfish power grab, which is how we view it. But in fact, he viewed it as a noble crusade to reform the government of God. He's saying, well, look, there are some problems here, and we need to make it better. So what does that mean? The next st uh, statement from Patriarchs and Prophets. Therefore, God permitted him to demonstrate the nature of his claims. To show the working out of his proposed changes in the divine law, his own work must condemn him. Notice this sentence. Satan had claimed from the very first that he was what? Not in rebellion. The whole universe must see the deceiver unmasked. Or, yes, the arch rebel himself. There was no rebellion. Pro He's the prototypical rebel, right? He's the first of all rebels that ever came after. And the rebel himself never admits that he's a rebel. You notice that. And why is it? It's because since that day, every genuine rebellion must have a compelling pretext. A rebellion is not sustained by merely being a rebellion. A rebellion is fueled and actualized and propelled with an ideal, with 
a cause that the adherents actually believed to be right and true and good. And so to make this clear, what was the cause, what was the this pretext that Lucifer was presenting to the angels? Same book, Story of Redemption, page 14, paragraph 2. Lucifer told them, meaning the angels, that henceforth all the sweet liberty the angels had enjoyed was at an end. For had not a ruler been appointed over them to whom they would henceforth, uh, they from henceforth must yield servile honor. He stated to them that he had called them together to assure them that he no longer would submit to this invasion of was what? His rights and theirs that never would he again bow down to Christ, that he would take the honor upon himself, which should have been conferred upon him, and would be the commander of all who would submit to follow him and obey his voice. The angels followed Lucifer, not because they were like, yeah, you know, Lucifer, you know, you're, uh, you're being so mistreated merely. But they followed him because they viewed injustice in the system. They saw that there was some uh, abuse of power going on. They saw their rights being violated. That's why they joined the cause. And think about this for a minute. One-third of the angels, we're told, followed Lucifer in his failed coup d'etat. Who are these angels? They were sinless, perfect, unfallen beings with full command of their mental faculties, unlike us, and they still fell for it. Rebellion can lead to some serious self-deception. So we see here Lucifer began with this issue, this disgruntlement with God's authority, Christ's authority specifically. But he had to mask his true uh, motives with something that looks a little bit more palatable. He has to give a little, he has to create that narrative. He has to have the spin on his side of the story. And his spin, his pretext was so compelling, so convincing that one third of perfect, unfallen angels followed him. And they followed him to a point where they were willing to be kicked out of heaven. And in the end, they're willing to follow him to the death. Let's see how the Spirit of Prophecy actually describes this. Uh, page 17 of the same book, paragraph 1. The great God could at once have hurled this arch deceiver from heaven, but this was not his purpose. He would give the rebellious an equal chance to measure strength and might with his own son and his loyal angels. In this battle, every angel would choose his own side and be manifested to all. It would not have been safe to suffer any who were united with Satan in his rebellion to continue to occupy heaven. They had learned the lesson of genuine rebellion against the unchangeable law of God, and this is what? incurable. You notice how it's described. Genuine rebellion is described as an incurable disease. And it's no wonder when you think about that, because now Satan and his angels believe in their cause to the point that God himself has become the enemy. The only person who can save them now is a person you would rather die than submit to. What hope of a cure is there when now you are genuinely so deluded that the cure you view to be poison? And so this, how did they get to this point? It all began with a problem with authority. A seed of rebellion that just began with a disc discontentment, a little bit of maybe feeling slighted, a small feeling that grew and got fostered until it came to a point where we're going to cast off all restraint. I'm going to fight you to the death. Now, of course, we know that the story doesn't end there in the great controversy. This rebellion comes to earth. It comes spilling out of heaven and it comes to earth. There are lots of stories of rebellion all throughout Scripture, but perhaps the most poignant one is found in Numbers chapter 16, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. We're not going to read all the verses. You can study it further yourself. But number 16, in the first few verses, Korah and Dathan and Byron comes to Moses, and, and this is what they say. They say, Moses, all the congregation are holy. You lift yourself up above the people. Why do you commit this discrimination? We are also a priesthood of all believers, they say. Moses' authority was being challenged because the people felt like there was inequity, inequality, inequality, injustice 
and discrimination being done in the camp. Of course, it was merely because Korah had the same feelings as Lucifer of not being treated as he thought he deserved. But that's the compelling prete uh, pretext, isn't it, for the cause? In Second Selected Messages, page 393, paragraph 2, the same language is used to describe this rebellion. I question whether genuine rebellion is ever what? Is ever curable. Study in Patriarchs and Prophets, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So the rest of the story goes, God, or Moses says, okay, God, I'm going to let him take care of this for me. God says, okay, I will make known who are my people, who are my appointed leaders. You remember what happened. The earth opened up its mouth, swallowed up the rebels. If you saw that, do you think that's pretty convincing evidence as to who God thinks is right or wrong? I mean, if the earth opened up and all the rebels fall in, I don't think we'd be sitting there saying, hmm, maybe they were right after all. But what happens? The children of Israel go back home. They sleep on it for a night. The next morning, they come back together, and this is what they say, number 1641. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. I don't even know what to say to that. Except to say that it clearly demonstrates why inspiration tells us genuine rebellion is incurable. People have lost their marbles. And you might be wondering, okay, those are nice Bible stories. Yeah, I know, I know. What does that have to do with us? It has everything to do with us because this is exactly Satan's game plan. This is his end game right here in 4T, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 211, paragraph 1. It is Satan's plan to weaken the faith of God's people in the testimonies. Next follows skepticism in regard to the vital points of our faith, the pillars of our position, then doubt as to the Holy Scriptures, and then the downward march to perdition. When the testimonies which were once believed are doubted and given up, Satan knows the deceived ones will not stop at this, and he redoubles his efforts till he launches them into what? Open rebellion, which becomes incurable, and ends in destruction. What happened to Lucifer and his angels? What happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and the compatriots? That's precisely what Lucifer wants with us. For us to get to that same point of no return as he did. And how did it all begin? A problem with authority. You know, when we think about the word authority, it's sort of a scary word in a different sense than all the things we've talked about before. And that is that the word authority, or the idea, the concept of authority, is not a neutral term. When we are faced with an authority figure in our lives, we are forced into a reaction. There's no neutral ground. It could be your parents, it could be a teacher, a principal, a counselor, a summer camp, it could be a boss, whatever it might be. If someone says, you know, you have to report to me now, we have one of two choices. We can either reject that authority, which leads to the path of rebellion, or we can accept it and submit. There's no middle ground. We have to choose. And to not choose is picking one of these two sides. And so in the great controversy, if it's true that this issue of God's authority is at the central issue, we have no choice but to pick sides. And so we think, okay, I'll be reasonable. This is what human beings say. I'll be reasonable, and I'll submit to authority. I don't have a problem with authority. I'll accept authority as long as I agree with it. Haven't we said that ourselves, or we've heard it been said? It's like the child. Mom says, clean your room, eat your peas, wash your face, whatever. And the child says, why? Why should I do that? It sounds reasonable, right? It sounds rational because like, well, I just want, I'm trying to be intelligent. I'm trying to reason with you. I'm trying to have a dialogue. Well, most of the time, of course, the child is just trying to get out of it, right? Or to delay obedience, which is actually disobedience and a rejection of authority. But if you think about it this way, why is authority needed? Presupposed in the word authority presupposed in that concept is disagreement. Because if we already agree, there's no submission needed. 
Therefore, there's no authority really being exercised. You understand? The reason why parents have an uh, authority with the child is because when the child disagrees, the parent's word wins. Same with the teacher in the classroom. If, I'll, if I will only submit if I agree in a roundabout way, who's really the authority? Because if I am the one that determines whether I agree or not, then I have actually made myself the authority. So this idea that I will only submit if I agree is a dangerous notion that actually undermines rightful submission to authority. And now you're thinking, well, so what do we do about this? We live in a society which authority is being questioned everywhere we look. Lucifer is trying to get us to that very point where he went. We know that there's no neutral ground. So what do we do? Well, you know, God already gave us a solution. It's called the gospel. And when we think about the gospel, a gos the gospel has multi-facets, but perhaps one of the core principles, concepts that very, uh, very comprehensively uh, encapsulates the essence of the gospel is a, is a word that I think you will all recognize. It's the word surrender. When we talk about surrendering to Jesus, what does that literally mean? It means giving up. It means I give you the right that I previously reserved for myself. Isn't that right? I'll go where you want me to go. We sing the hymn. I'll do what you want me to do. I'm going to trust in you. I'm not going to make plans for myself. I'm not going to allow myself to usurp your word in my life. The essence of the gospel is surrender. And that's why, the, and the reason why surrender is so important now we see in the scope of the great controversy is because that's precisely the thing that Lucifer refused to do. It's a wonderful thing to have Jesus as our Savior, is it not? He died to take our place. He suffered the death that we deserve, that we might have life that he deserves. But you do realize that that's only half the gospel. Because not only does Jesus have to be our Savior, what must he also be? Also our Lord. What does it mean to have a Lord? You know, we don't live in feudal times in the medieval ages with our you know lords and their vassals but what does it literally mean to have a lord means to have a king it means to have an authority someone that has rulership over us and when we come to jesus yes we accept him as savior we accept the penalty or, or him substitution uh, for a penalty but beyond that we give him permission to direct our footsteps we give him permission to tell us what to do and we don't argue when we come down to the altar call, when we say, I surrender all to Jesus, we don't then go back home and have a full court negotiation and say, well, Lord, you can have this, but not that. That's not how it works when we come to Jesus. He gets all of us, amen? amen. And why is that necessary? Why is this the essence of the gospel? It's because the core issue in the great controversy is God's authority. Lucifer refused to give Jesus that permission in his life. And if we, and he got kicked out of heaven for it, if we're ever going to be readmitted into heaven, we're going to have to come to that point in which we say, I disavow Lucifer's rebellion. I don't agree with him. And how do I demonstrate that? By surrendering. By saying, Lord, you have full ownership, complete access, nothing barred, Whatever you say, I will do. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. That's the essence of the gospel. But how do we do it practically? So yes, we surrender, but let's take this the next step. Let's take the next step further. So I want to surrender to Jesus. I want to let him be Lord of my life. How do I do that? Well, like Jesus said, at the end time, there'll be people that say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things in my name? And he says, did you, why did you not do what I told you? The Protestant reformers have the rallying cry, Sola Scriptura, which reminds us that the Bible is to be the highest and the final rule of authority in a Christian's life. Why? It's because it's the Word of God. If God is our authority, 
and this is his direct communication to us, then the word of God is equivalent to the authority of God. It's that simple. It's his word, so we obey it. The Bible is very clear about this point. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Isaiah 8, 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. The book Great Controversy makes this really clear. Page 595, paragraph 1. But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of signs, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and as discordant as the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these, should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in his support. The Bible is the last word in the Christian's life. But this is where we take a slight pivot. And that is when we study scripture, we see that God has outlined in scripture representatives on the earth to whom he has delegated authority. God knows that as fallen, feeble human beings, we need practice. We need to model the behavior in order for us to actually know how it works. So God wants us to trust his authority and to help us understand what that means and what that looks like. He gives us earthly authorities for us to have that experience and practice. And so we're going to look at three. There are many, but there are three that we're going to look at in the uh, last portion of our message today. Now, it's important to mention that these delegated sources of authority or representatives, they're like an ambassador. When an ambassador is sent to a foreign country, uh, he doesn't innately possess any authority in and of himself. He is authoritative merely because he's been vested authority by the head of state, the king, the monarch, the president, whatever, whoever it is, that sent him. So we have to understand that the earthly authorities, all of them, have authority in so much as God has delegated to them. And as a result, they're always subservient to uh, God's authority. So the first one we're going to look at is parental authority. Parental authority is the first one we'll look at. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 308, paragraph 2, it says, God himself, who has placed upon them or parents a responsibility for the souls committed to their charge, has ordained that during the earlier years of life, parents shall stand in the place of God to their children. And he who rejects the rightful authority of his parents is rejecting the authority of God. And all the parents said? Amen. Amen. And this afternoon, the parents are going to repeat this verse to their children over and over. And so, you notice in this statement, it's very clear, it's specifically outlining the earlier years of life. And we need to make this clear. When children are younger, they have more obligation because they're under the roof of the parents. And as they grow 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and onward, right, the relationship between child and parent necessarily changes. We're not disputing that. But particularly for younger children, but even older children, we have an obligation to honor our father and our mother. That's the first commandment with promise, fifth commandment. And here God is making it very clear that he sees a direct relationship. How we relate to our parents directly impacts how we relate with him. Now why is that? Well, it's because God is our heavenly father. For us to understand how to relate to him in that way, he's given us earthly parents, earthly fathers, and mothers. And this next statement here in Patriarchs and Prophets, again, page 337, paragraph 1, it says, contempt for parental authority will soon lead to contempt for the authority of God. Hence, Satan's efforts to lessen the obligation of the fifth commandment. There's a direct correlation. If we do not learn how to properly respect our parents, we're going to have a hard time properly respecting God. I think we understand that point, just even, you know, innately, instinctively. But I need to make also an important caveat, a balancing statement in Scripture. Because unfortunately, in this day and age, families frequently are dysfunctional and they're broken and there's abuse and there's unfortunate things that happen. And so we need to remember that Scripture is not giving license to inappropriate abuses of authority either. So we need to remember that. Ephesians 6, verse 1 uh, 1 through 4 says, Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. Parents are subservient to God, always. For this is right. 
Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So we as parents, we have an obligation to rightly represent to our children who God is, what he's like, to help them see what kind of authority he is. He's not this dysfunctional authority figure that we are being programmed to think he is by the world, but he's a loving father. He's one who's sacrificial to us. And he's one who's got our back. That's our role as parents. And as children, we are to defer our preferences to our parents as far as, or insofar, as our parents do not contradict the clear will of God as revealed in Scripture. If that's clear, let me hear you say amen. amen. So we've got to understand there's two sides. There's balance here. So that's the first earthly authority. The second one we want to look at is civil authority. Civil authority or the government. Romans 13, verses 1 through 3. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Continuing, verses 4 through 6, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to you uh, to this very thing. So we might read this and we might just let it gloss over us. We say, yeah, I pay my taxes. Yeah, I vote. I'm a good citizen. I obey the law. Yeah, okay, move on next. I understand. But let's pause a moment. Let's just think, what is the governing authority in Paul's day when he wrote this? It's the pagan Roman Empire. Now, is that a friendly, was that a friendly governing power to the Christian religion? No. In a word, it was a persecuting power, was it not? Who was it that ordered all the baby boys killed in Bethlehem? It was Herod, a Roman magistrate. Who were the ones that invented crucifixion? The one who nailed Jesus on the cross. They were Roman soldiers. Who was a, who, what was the government, governing power that actually beheaded Paul at the end of his life? It was Rome. This is the government of Nero later on in, in Christian history where he will burn Christians for sport. And notice carefully, what does Paul call them? God's minister. This is not to say this is not to say that everything a government does is good. We know that. But it's to say that even though we may disagree, even though we may have real discomfort and real questions about the you know, justness of a particular institution, when God has invested them with a level of authority, we are still obligated to submit. Just because we disagree, just because we didn't vote for this president, just because we don't agree with a certain bill, just because we don't like walls. Sorry, couldn't help but slip that in. Or just because we like them. It goes both ways, right? The point is, even if we disagree, it doesn't absolve us from our obligation to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And this goes with any earthly authority because no earthly authority is ever going to be perfect, right? But of course, the other balancing statement here is found in Acts of the Apostles, page 68, paragraph 2. We are to recognize human government as an ordinance of divine appointment and teach obedience to it as sacred duty within its legitimate sphere. But when its claims conflict with the claims of God, we must obey God rather than men. God's word must be recognized as above all human legislation. This is one of the things that we, as Adventists particularly, we dwell on a lot. At the end times, we know the end time scenario is going to be earthly governments trying to usurp the authority of God's government, man's laws versus God's laws, mark of the beast, seal of God. We know the final conflict, and we know that this is going to be the final crisis, a piece of the final crisis. But until that time, let's not borrow trouble before it comes, right? 
And let's keep the balancing view in, in mind that it is actually still a sacred obligation for us to respect our governing authorities, even though we know where this thing is going to end. So earthly authorities, we talked about parents, we talked about the state, both imperfect, perhaps even uh, erring sources of authority, but God nevertheless does not allow us to circumvent their authority merely because we disagree or even if uh, we have some major problems with them. So the third and the last earthly authority that we will be looking at today is ecclesiastical authority or church authority. In Acts of the Apostles, page 163, paragraph 2, it says, God has invested his church with special authority and power, which no one can be justified in disregarding and despising, for he who does this despises the voice of God. Testimonies for the Church, volume 3, page 450, paragraph 3. God has bestowed the highest power under heaven upon his church. It is the voice of God in his united people and church capacity, which is to be respected. Not only did God give the church special authority, we're told it is the highest authority under heaven. More than the state. More than our parents. To illustrate this, let's take a look at the Bible. Matthew chapter 18, we're familiar with this passage because we love to hurl it at anyone who offends us. You understand what I'm talking about, right? You didn't come talk to me first, right? That's the Matthew 18 model. We go one-on-one, and then if they don't listen or we can't resolve and bring about reconciliation, we go to the next step. We bring one or two others. Well, what happens after one or two others and it still doesn't work out? Where do we take it? In the verse right there, it says, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the church ha- is the highest court of appeals for moral or spiritual issues. Even the state does not have jurisdiction over that kind of stuff. God has placed that authority in the church. And so when a local church decides to discipline a member or to disfellowship a member, there's no other court of appeals. God has given the church that level of authority. Of course, we understand disfellowship or discipline is not related to salvation. That's only God's prerogative. But as far as relationship and membership with the body of Christ, that is a high level of authority that God has given to the church. But within the church itself, there are different tiers of authority as well. And within the church itself, there is one body that God has placed the highest amount of authority. In Testimonies for the Church, volume 9, page 260, paragraph 1. Never should the mind of one man or the minds of a few men be regarded as sufficient in wisdom and power to control the work and to say what plans should be followed. But when in a general conference, and when we say this, we mean the general conference session, that takes place every five years, not the headquarters, not the executive officers. The judgment of the brethren assembled from all parts of the field is exercised. Private independence and private judgment must not be stubbornly maintained, but surrendered. Never should a laborer regard as a virtue the persistent maintenance of his position of independence contrary to the decisions of the body. Notice there's that word again. It should our private independence and private judgment must not be stubbornly maintained, but surrendered. There is an element of humility involved when we are working within the body of Christ. Because just like our parents, just like the state, the church is not perfect. The church may make mistakes. People in the church most certainly make mistakes. But when we are gathered together and there is an authority structure that's put in place and God has invested a certain body in the church, authority... We do are not allowed to disagree, or we are still uh, expected, rather, to submit even if we may disagree. It may be difficult. It doesn't mean it's easy. But there is this idea within every piece of this puzzle that we're putting together of self-sacrifice, the willingness to say, I may have to put aside some of what I prefer, for the greater good because God has given me an authority that I am responsible to. 
In the next paragraph, it says, God has ordained that the representatives of his church from all parts of the world, when assembled in a general conference, shall have authority. Of course, this idea of a general conference is not original to the Adventist church. It's based on the model found in the Bible in Acts chapter 15 called the Jerusalem Council. And in the aftermath of the decision of the Jerusalem Council, the decision about circumcision, is it required for salvation or not, the church made a decision The brethren gathered together representatives from the then world church. They made a decision and it became binding policy for the whole church and everybody agreed. However, we're told that there was was some fallout from that decision. Acts of the Apostles, page 196, paragraph 2, it says, Not all, however, were pleased with the decision. There was a faction of ambitious and self-confident brethren who disagreed with it. These men assumed to engage in the work on their own responsibility. They indulged in much murmuring and fault-finding, proposing new plans, and seeking to pull down the work of the men whom God had ordained to teach the gospel message. From the first, the church has had such obstacles to meet and ever will have till the close of time. Why? Why is this a problem that God has already told us is going to be a recurring issue within the church? People disagreeing, finding it difficult to surrender their private judgments and independent uh, decisions. It's because we each innately have a problem with authority. And we are placed in a position where we are going to have to make a choice. Even if we don't agree, will I submit? That's the question. But the question might also be, why is this such a big deal in the church? Why should I submit to the church if I've studied the Bible? God has enlightened my mind. I've seen it with my own eyes. I am so convinced it may even be a conscientious issue that I believe wholeheartedly in. Why should I still follow the decisions of the worldwide church? A wise man once told me something that will never leave me. God leads us more reliably than he leads just me. There's a reason why God has placed us in relation to each other. It's because we need each other. No matter how studious I might be, no matter how much I pray, how sincere I am, I may not see the full picture. I definitely don't see the full picture, I should say. I may have presuppositions that blind me to certain aspects of the truth, that I need someone else, a brother or sister, to say, look, you know, have you looked at it this way? I might have blind spots. I might have biases. There are certain things about me that prevent me from seeing everything. And so God says, let's get everyone together. Prayerfully, I will work through the body as a whole so that he can lead us more reliably than he leads just me. The Bible is clear. In a multitude of counselors, there is safety. We use that principle all the time. And of course, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That's not a promise just to claim when only one or two people show up for prayer meeting. You understand? You know, we say that to make ourselves feel better. Now, now, Jesus is still here. Don't feel bad. But when we've got two or 3,000 delegates from around the world gathered together prayerfully to make decisions for God's church, does that promise no longer apply? God leads us more reliably than he leads just me. But to stay together, we've got to have that level of self-awareness and humility to say, you know what? I might be wrong. I might not see everything there is to see. And because I respect my brothers and sisters that I may even disagree vehemently with, I believe God's going to lead this church. You know, when we look at all these earthly authorities, parents, the governments, the state, even within the church itself, it's easy to become disillusioned and disheartened. We started this message looking at some of the common, you know, uh, con- ideas and the, the feelings that we have about authority figures, and you know what? A lot of it is justified. We see dysfunctional families. We hear about domestic abuse. We see governments being unjust, cruel. They don't take care of their people. The poor are being trampled on. We look in the church and there's a lot of, there's plenty of fodder for the tabloids, the sanctified tabloids within the church to chew on and to spit each other out. Some of it might be justified. Maybe there's stuff going on. But the reality of the matter is 
Satan has us exactly where he wants us. Because what's his goal? We already saw it. The end game, the script, the game plan, it's worked for millennia. Why would he stop now? He wants to get us to a point where we have questions about authority. So that root of rebellion takes, or the seed of rebellion germinates and takes root, and as it grows, we start casting off more authority until eventually he wants to get us to a point where genuine rebellion becomes incurable. And so what's his master plan? His master plan is to get us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. For us to look at the authorities around us and to see legitimate problems so that it robs us of our confidence that God is still in control. We look at the church, we look at families, we look at society, we look at the government, we look all around us and we say, there's no one to trust except me. And so when God steps into the picture and he says, my son, my daughter, trust me, we say, I can't do that. It's too difficult. It's too risky. I don't want to risk that pain again because of all these other people that have hurt me. But this is the point. Two wrongs don't make a right. Just because we've been unjustly treated, just because we see injustice around us, just because we see problems, it doesn't release us from the need to surrender to God's authority. There's no way, there's no other way to make it to heaven. And so the devil is so slick. He's so sly and so smart. He's, wo- he's woven his web around us so that it is so difficult for us to see God for who he is, to give him that complete confidence and the trust that is necessary for us to be surrendered fully to him. But you know, God is not caught unprepared. God raised up a movement and gave it a message to help address this core issue in the great controversy. We talk about the three angels' messages all the time, right here, the first angel, Revelation chapter 14. We'll skip right to verse 7. It says, saying with a loud voice, fear God. The three angels' message, the core of why this church exists, the first two words in this message, prophetic message, is to fear God. What does that mean? It means let's put God back in his rightful place of authority in our lives. Make him Lord of our lives. Let's accept him for who he is and let's realize who we are in relation to him. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. How dare you, God? Who gave you the right to judge me? Well, I'm God. I am the ultimate authority in the universe. That's why God has the right. That's why he's the only one that has the right to judge us. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Why should I worship you, God? It's because I'm the creator. And as creator, I'm the originator of all things. I'm the originator of your life. That's why I am qualified to be the ultimate authority. That's why I am worthy of your worship. And so for us today, if this is our message, if this is our message, our message integrally, a portion of our message integrally uh, integrated in the message is the idea that we must place God back in his rightful place of authority in people's lives. So how do we do that? How do we do that? We have an obligation to preach the three angels' messages, yes. So how do we appropriately demonstrate to them that God is not an authority to be feared? We should show God who, show who God really is. If we have individuals under our authority, perhaps we are leaders in some institution, or we're parents, or we're teachers, or in some relationship with younger people than us, we have an obligation to raise them in the admonition of the Lord, to show them who God is and who he's not, to unravel the misconception that is hurled at us from all sides. And then beyond that, we ourselves have to demonstrate what it means to surrender to the authorities that are above us, to be the right example on both sides so that people look at us and realize, oh, wow, those people actually believe what they say. So who's your authority today? Our scripture reading is Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Do you think that ev- those every knee, it includes Satan's le- knees? Lucifer and his angels? Every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Verse 11. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you think Satan's tongue is included in that? The great controversy began when Lucifer argued against Christ's authority. The great controversy will end when Lucifer himself confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in order for us to be found on the right side, we have to learn how to say that now. We have to learn to kneel before Jesus now as our Lord and as our Savior. Who's your authority today? The appeal for this message is very simple. Just two parts to it. We've already mentioned it. We know that we want to accept Jesus as our Savior. Yes. We realize it might be a little bit more difficult to allow him to be Lord. But we want to do that too, I believe. So practically, how do we accomplish that? Well, there's just two things. Can we show to the world Can we demonstrate through our example, through our life, through our character, who God really is? So that when people see us as we relate to those under our care, they will see who God, that God is not a stern, arbitrary, totalitarian authority to be feared. That's what Satan wants us to believe. But that people will be drawn to Jesus and say, that's a leader I'm willing to give everything to. That's the first part of the appeal, for us to be that kind of example, to manifest to people who Jesus really is. The second part of the appeal is for us to surrender ourselves under God's rightful authorities. Maybe we ourselves have issues with authorities in our lives. Maybe there's a boss. Maybe there's a parent or a relative or a teacher. Maybe there's some issue we have with the church that is unresolved. And we ourselves are not demonstrating to those watching us that we are willing to surrender even if we don't agree. So how is it with you and your Lord? How many of you want to make those decisions with me today? To be an example in both sides, regardless of which side of the authority spectrum we might be on. I know that's what I want to accomplish. That's the example I want to leave for those who are watching Let us pray as we conclude. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not an authority to be feared. You are a just and loving heavenly father. While we might misrepresent you in this world, we know that this is still, nevertheless, a crucial issue that we must understand properly. So Lord, today our commitment to you is merely that we will be an example to others of who you really are, that they might come to love you and not fear you to be willing to surrender to you and not to fight and to resist. And Lord, if there are authority figures in our lives that we are unwilling to surrender to, rightful authority, good authority that you have placed in our lives and we struggle, Lord, I pray that you will help us. Help us to be willing to be made willing, to be humble, to be willing to put self aside for the sake of the greater good. And so, Lord, please bless us as we go from this place. May Christ walk with us, and may we be faithful to the end is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.